Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, welcome everybody. It's another episode of that Early Childhood Nerd. This one has been a long time coming. (laughs) My guest today is going to be Donna King, who wrote a book called Pursuing Bad Guys, Joining Children's Quest for Clarity, Courage, and Community. And I say it's been a long time coming, Donna, because we've been talking about this for months and and trying to schedule it um, and and all that. So anyway, this has been a great book. You guys are going to love hearing her talk about it. I'll show it for the people who are watching the video version of the of the episode. Um, and honestly, Donna, when I when I got this book, um, it's from Exchange, and they're great about letting me know what their new books are. I really was expecting it to be another book that just gives us permission to let children play bad guys, right. and it was so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, would you please tell folks about yourself and about yeah. the book, and then we'll jump in. We have several quotes for this episode. Yeah, I'd love to. And Heather, thanks for having me, and really thanks so much for the. Um, shout outs and the support that you give to the Rose series. I have to oh, say it like that. They're so or, good. Yeah. Yeah. And like just being part, like one of the teacher voices in that series has just been like, it's such an incredible honor and privilege. And yeah. The whole thing has just been like one of the most fun things I've ever done in my entire life. So I, I appreciate that a lot. They um, seem to do fun things over there at Exchange. Yeah. They just, really, <laughs> they just really care. And they've yeah. got that playful, creative spirit. They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah. So I was a kid who grew up in suburbia playing teacher <laughs> with anyone who would agree to be a student in my little schools that I yeah. fashioned under willow trees and in backyards. And um, I did a lot of babysitting, which I really enjoyed. And my mom was this amazing, gifted middle school teacher. So I was sort of in that like teaching world when I was growing up. But by the time I was in high school and college, I was totally imagining myself probably because my family was imagining me in like a more conventionally like high achiever sort of job. Yeah. I was going to be an English professor. Um, and I don't think at that point in my life, I even really knew that early childhood education was a legitimate field of study. Absolutely. That was my experience. I yeah. was in a job before I realized it was. Yes, exactly. I had no idea that teaching little kids was anything other than babysitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, But then in this like super lucky little pause, this little moment between college and starting graduate school in English, I happened to land in this afternoon childcare job because like, well, they said I was overqualified. That just sort of shows you (laughs) how easy it was to get that job since I knew nothing about what I was doing. And the childcare program itself was actually appalling. And there's a lot of stories about that. Mm -hmm. But oh my God, I just loved those kids. Like it was so enlivening. I was so happy in that job, even though it was an awful job. And so I was like, dry. I just got married. I'm I was connecting like, to so much of this. Yeah, yeah right. And I, and I just got married. I've been married like, you know, like a month or something. And I was like dragging my husband, Kevin, to like paint and clean and reorganize this like super crummy basement classroom they had me in. And, um, and it was amazing. And then I did that for a little while. And then I ended up going to a more established um, somewhat better child care program. And the director there, who was a real early childhood person, mm-hmm. became a mentor and opened my eyes to this whole big world of early childhood knowledge and study. She just gave me tons of stuff, like your bookcases. It's like how she would. She just gave me tons <laughs> of stuff to read. And I basically found myself in the work, you know, yeah. and I never looked back. So yeah. instead of grad school in English, I did my master's in child development. Yes. And along the way, I helped that same mentor design and launch a small, high quality early childhood program. It was the first in the state of North Carolina to get NACI accredited, uh-huh. which is something about how old I am. Um, <laughs> and that experience was amazing in some ways, and in some ways was really disappointing. Yeah. And after a few years of teaching there, I 
kind of translated my experience of what I'd loved there and what worked well and what didn't work so well Mm -hmm. into a plan for a small nonprofit school um, where I still teach today, um, 32 years later. And this little program where I teach now, we were really prioritizing transparency and communication between parents and teachers. Nonprofit status was super important to us. Um, Small group size, respectful relationships between kids and adults. And we base, we called the program actually Children First to codify our commitment to have parents and teachers working together in equal numbers on a nonprofit board to kind of mm-hmm. to grapple with the stark realities of early childhood funding yeah. and to sort of arrive at budgets and policies that the way we talk about it is that we're that fairly divide the burden of providing <laughs> care and education of uncompromising quality between yeah. the grown-ups who share in the project of the children's care. So basically our school is teachers and parents working together to put children first. I love so, it. That sounds great. Yeah. Wow. So I've spent, it's been an interesting experiment yeah. and a lot of stories, but I've spent <laughs> pretty much my whole growing up life in this little school, um, including the years where I was raising my three children mm-hmm. who are all grown ups now, 30, 28, 26. Yeah. Um, and that's the context in which this year documented in the book, Pursuing Bad Guys uh-huh. unfolds. Um, And I think the last thing I'd want to say about myself before we talk about the book is that one of the things I've discovered in the work since abandoning my plans to be an English professor. I also started as an English. Yeah, there's a bunch of us. Lily and Kat, Sue Brady. There's a there's a legacy and Halo. Like there are so many. There's you know like it's a proud legacy. Uh, I think of it as a narrow escape, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine, like, what my mental health. I, it, it's still, it, I, I'm so grateful. But anyway, <laughs> but what I discovered is that the early childhood classroom is an incredible laboratory for the study of story. Uh, um, and so in some really important ways, I didn't really leave that part of myself behind, you know, to do uh-huh. the work that I do now. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. me. That sounds great. So uh-huh. there were, like, five things in there that I was like, we could talk about that. We could talk about that. We could. <laughs> Um, but let's talk about your book first, okay. at least. Let's let's at least get into this book. Um, so I'll I'll just get a little um, uh, fangirly for a minute as mm-hmm. we're starting, but um, and just just say that um, this book was really powerful, and I mean it was it's meaningful, and it, it's I just respect so much the way that you portray the children as competent throughout the whole you know, this is centered on children's competence and, um, and it's just really written beautifully, but also thank you because this is one of the first, uh, early childhood books that I started reading when I started chemotherapy a year ago. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, when I see it, I remember being in that chemo chair also yeah. <laughs> and how sort of calming it was to yeah. have this, this beautifully written book, um, and these beautiful stories about the children. Right. Well, it's a vulnerable story. And a story of possibility, right? Yeah. Which is very much a fit for for being in that chemo chair. Yeah, with the, for that unwelcome but super important project that you were in in your own life. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So yeah. I just, I just think that's very moving it. to me to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first quote we have, like I said, we have a list this time because I kind of just went. You know, Donna and I have had some conversations about how we feel like this could go, um, and. Uh, uh, I just kept looking through the book for the one big quote that could start us and I couldn't choose. So, so we've got several. The first one that I'd like to hear you talk more about is um, early in the book on page 22, you say, pretending is like releasing a big deep breath. It clears tension and it frees up emotional energy that children need to become the decent people they aspire to be. I love the idea of pretending being a big deep breath. Yeah, um, that that connected for me right away. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I hadn't thought about this before, but I'm just realizing how that's related to that Sylvia Ashton Warner image about, um, about pretending being like a vent, you know, in a volcanic vent, like that's mm-hmm. whole breathing in and breathing out so huge in her work. Um, yeah. When I was coming of age in the field and coming to understand from reading and direct observation, what early childhood is all about, what seemed most clear is that a teacher who respects young children and who wants to align herself with their needs and interests and agendas is gonna center and honor and pay attention to their pretend play. That just seemed like the one, the one least wrong thing you could do. Yeah. 
No, and in a given day with a million decisions and like all kinds of things at stake and all the kinds of analysis, paralysis and uncertainty a person can bring to this incredibly like tender and vulnerable work that we do. Mm -hmm. That just seemed like a no brainer. Like pretending has got to be at the middle of everything. So it's like basically thinking to pretend play is children's first and most potent expressive language. Or like if you're going to use like the Emily Plank lens, and by the way, oh my God, thank you for that book. Oh, I never knew about it until I heard you talk about it, and I just deep out. Yeah, what it's, a brilliant book! Oh my yeah, God, it really was um, one of the big game changers for me in the last yeah. several years. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing book. It's the yeah. culture of childhood. Um, yes. Um, yeah, so you know, like you could think like that pretending is their native language. It's the uh-huh. language you just gotta, you gotta speak it. You don't have to do it. You're not pretending. That would be so gross. You're not a kid. You're not pretending to be them. That would be just gross in the same way. It would be gross <laughs> to pretend to be anything other than the white person I am. But right. you know, like for me, but like, but it does like, um, it does point you toward the importance of like, you know, understanding that language well enough to listen well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, I think this idea about pretending mean like a deep breath um, that frees up emotional energy for becoming the real life good people you want to be. That comes from theory, but most of it just comes from watching in real time mm-hmm. the way the kids play serves them, like the way it shows us who they are and what they're thinking about and what troubles them and what excites and delights them. And the way they use this like deeply personal individual expression with each other mm-hmm. to create community and a shared culture of play with each other. Yeah. Um, Vivian Paley has that beautiful expression about storytelling and acting, which is a huge important part of our school culture. She says, loneliness is impossible in this activity. Yeah. And I think she might say the same thing about pretending with friends. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, now that I, as I'm listening to you talk about that more, what comes to mind for me, and this is um, maybe in it just kind of hovering in my subconscious right now because of some uh, research I'm doing, but um the I'm hearing so often now, well, children just don't know how to play anymore. Mm. And w- when I listen to you talk about pretending mm-hmm. and being this natural language for them, and um, it's like, no, maybe we just have lost mm. the skill to see it or the willingness to see it or see it there's or- this veil of um, outside expectations between yeah. us and that yeah. play. Um, yeah. And, and it, I don't, I haven't, I've met kids who struggle with pretending like who are, who probably are never going to really find that a comfortable language yeah. just because of the way their brains are. Sure. And I've met clusters of kids whose pretending had been hijacked generally by television. Oh, we actually had a, I remember this is a long time ago, but I remember a group of boys um, we had who, whose play was so repetitive and so stuck that we actually started calling it brain dead play. I mean, with them. <laughs> right. Just, oh, there's that play that's not using your brains again. Like, how can we help? Like there, so there, it's like we have encountered moments in time where kids were yeah. struggling with pretending, but if kids are, my experience would say that if kids are given time, space, if, if distractions are taken away, like uh-huh. I kids are given materials, but not too many toys, things like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and if a, pretending is what the teachers are paying attention to and reflecting back and honoring and valuing and talking about, um, then, then it's there. Uh-huh. Like it's, I'm not saying there aren't difficulties that people yeah. are really seeing and screens are such a problem in so many ways, but yeah, I, I believe yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, um, you, you know, the other, I think the other piece of that is, um, uh, just for the sake of listeners who want to, to, to send me emails now, it's, I know that der- pretend play is not the only kind of play, like, you know, children play in lots of different ways. Yeah. And, um, and there's uh, playful work. There's lots of kinds yes. of playful work, but yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, I didn't ask you before, and maybe I should have asked you before, we started in with quotes, but just to, to sort of give us a synopsis of what you did with this book, like the children are pretending and the, mm-hmm. and the book is sort of you paying deep attention to their bad guy themes and then finding ways. I don't want to, I don't want to describe it badly. 
No, that's that's fair. And I think if we keep going, yeah, there may be it'll more, come up. more things that will sort yeah. of make it clear. But yeah, ba yeah, basically, the book is really the book is the book works on a, a few levels, like on one level. Yeah, it's a particular group of kids at a very particular moment in time, uh -huh. really preoccupied with bad guy play mm -hmm. in, a, in a way particular to them. I mean, it's always in the school, but in, in the kid world, but it's mm -hmm. particular to this group and how we aligned ourselves and looked at that play and what we think that was about. So there's a lot in the book around the kids play and their stories and their visual work. Um, and it's a lot, a story about my co-teacher Sarah and I working with the pedagogical consultant, Pam mm -hmm. Oakenwright, to um, try to step toward a way of being with kids that was a, that was just a step beyond what we'd done in our many, many years of working yeah. before in terms of being co-researchers with yeah. kids. Yeah. Okay. So that leads nicely into the second quote, actually. Ah, yeah. um, you said, um, teachers study the children's work the way a literary critic studies a novel. And there's new context for that now that I know you were an English major, yeah. English degree. Um, looking for meaning in themes and imagery, and especially searching out the motivations and developmental arcs of the characters. And I tend to think of teachers as researchers when we talk mm -hmm. in this way, but I also, yeah. as a, a current literary nerd and former uh, English lit major, um, thinking of it as a literary critic is a new sort of nuanced way yeah. To, yeah. to consider yeah. my role. Especially all that raw material that we collect, yeah. you know, their stories and their dialogue and all that stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate you lifting up this quote because it is one of those places where my English major self <laughs> matches up with my preschool teacher self. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the way that we talk about it here a lot, and this is very, um, you know, Reggio-inspired language, is that the kids really are the protagonists in their unfolding life stories and our observations of play and the documentation we create based on those observations. And we're a program that has been really, really strongly committed to documentation in the sense of like capturing our observations with images and transcriptions and mm -hmm. reflection. That's just been a big part of our teaching practice forever. Like even before we became another one of the programs that just could not breathe because we were so blown away by Reggio. Yeah. And what was happening in that city. Um, but that way of paying attention, you know, because it's got deep, deep roots in, I don't, it's just got deep roots in progressive mm -hmm. early childhood education, even before the Regio stuff, it, especially in a program that cares a lot about each child, like trying yeah. to understand them. Um, so yes, we take all these observations, these conversations we have with the kids and the stories they tell and the visual work they create, and we study all that. And that's like the raw material that helps us suss out the, like, the bones you know, of the unfolding narrative of their lives to see the trajectory of that narrative. Mm -hmm. and, and I always feel like it's super important to say when I talk about the way we document and this like literary critic kind of role we have with their narratives is that no matter what our attempts to read the kids and their actions and words and their stories and their play and their art. And no matter how much we intend to bring curiosity and open-mindedness and clear-sightedness to all that study, we always need to be aware of what a deeply subjective process it yeah. is. Yeah, to be their readers and what an incredible responsibility and power we have, a, a power that's potentially quite corrupting, mm -hmm. right? Like I think it's a very... It's a knife edge, you know, like the, between like lifting children up with documentation yeah. and interpreting them in a way that's maybe doesn't serve their best interests. Um, yeah. So especially as the interpreters of this raw material and as the people who communicate our version of their narrative to other people, to them, obviously, but to the other kids mm -hmm. and to their families, um, we have just an incredible responsibility to bring as much integrity and self-awareness as we can yes. in that process. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would say I, like our most sacred responsibility as teachers in some ways is to distill that story that we have the privilege of witnessing yeah. through a generous and trusting and deeply considered lens at all times. Yeah. So um, yeah, Carol Garbode Murray and I just did an episode about learning stories hmm. um, and Tom Drummond's work on that. But also I just did... Um, 
a couple of workshops for a group in uh, Michigan on the topic of, of observing children and how yeah. it's, it's for more than just that assessment checklist that you have to turn oh in gosh, yeah. and, or the teaching standards gold and um, whatever their system is. Um, so thinking about looking for themes and imagery. Yes. Um, is I'm like that that connects for me and maybe it yeah. is because of my literary background yeah. but it's hard I think for some for some folks to understand what that means like what what are what do you mean when you say we're looking for the themes of their play sometimes it's really big like mm -hmm. oh it's obviously bad guys here yeah but but sometimes it's it's not quite so big and noticeable and within that bad guy theme there mm -hmm. might be other themes that yes that yeah. you noticed yeah, right. Or for, t for for particular kids or in particular group dynamics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I, I can't speak for every kind of teacher or every kind of thinker that's in this work. I, I don't know. But I, I know for me that if I'm not, if I'm not paying attention in that way, almost like if I, I am almost like, this is like sort of embarrassing to say, but I would say like if I'm a teacher without a recorder and a camera and a clipboard in my hand, I'm a sleepier teacher. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just not as awake yeah. to, to, um, to everything that's happening in front of me. Like I, I just, and I, and I think that like what I've always loved the most in this work is getting to know these people, yeah. like trying to figure them out, like just trying to understand them, trying to, con you know, that's just that, um, that's just what is an incredibly enlivening for me. Yeah. And of course it's what I'm saying. And there's probably a lot of, you know, there's that beautiful, um, those beautiful words that uh, the novelist Marilyn Robinson says about life in general. She says, there's a thousand, thousand reasons to live this life, every one of them sufficient. Mm -hmm. There's probably a thousand, thousand reasons to be a teacher. And there's probably a lot of ways to do this work with love that are not my way, right? Uh -huh. But I would say for me, like, this way of engaging where, yeah, you're trying to deeply understand is just it's just what keeps me in love uh -huh. but what what but the dark side of that way of being would be like that kind of prurient interest you know people can have and do you know what i mean like that like like almost like gossipy or yeah you know what i mean or just like looking for fishing for pain i love that phrase it's oh boy uh -huh. you know all of that like that's like that would be like the darks. Like there's probably a dark side of every way we can be with kids and that yeah. would be the dark side of this way yeah. um yeah, so you got to discipline, you know, it's a discipline to, mm -hmm. to uh, channel all that sure. curiosity and interpretation. Well, and it, it seems almost maybe, as I think about saying this, that this is an oversimplification, but it's a skill, right, that you mm -hmm. develop. You choose that oh, this yeah. is the way I want to look at what's happening in front of me. This is, mm -hmm. this is the way I want to, tr to see what's happening in front yeah. of me. Yeah, I think I think what what I say to parents a lot when they're thinking about like, what do I do when my kid does blah? Is I always say like, so you've got a few decisions to make, but the first decision you you're, you get to make is what lens am I using to look uh -huh. at this thing? And so I think this is one of the lenses is like a this is like this kind of lens of a character study. Let's call it that. Like a mm -hmm. character study lens is a really serviceable, interesting lens that mostly leads to really good things so that's a lens you can choose and there may be you know other lenses that are, mm -hmm. there are I mean there's a tons of lenses you can use right right yeah right. that's that's a good way to handle those responses a lot of times when anyone asks me what do you do when a child does this my, my first inclination is usually well you're not going to like my answer <laughs> Oh, that's so funny <laughs> because oh, yeah. it's it's not going to be a quick fix. I know. Oh yeah, because you're going to say you're because you're going to say it depends. Like yes, that. I'm like, going yeah. to say it depends. Yeah, and um, that's not the answer you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. So page thirty three then is our next one, and you say I just have the ellipses, and I don't remember what is at the before this, but it says teacher action does not interrupt, but instead meets up with children's agenda. What What does that mean? What, yeah. is, what does that first, mean? First of all, it means that I laughed a little bit seeing that quote <laughs> again. Because I basically said, yeah, that's the aspiration, right? Like, yeah. which around here we meet, like, I don't know what percentage of the time. You know, I'm mm -hmm. just not sure. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, what it's talking about is alignment, right? Uh -huh. It's alignment. And 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 
I'll, I'll say I have a few things to say about this. So first of all, I should give some context. So uh-huh. we're really lucky in this little school to be working with a small group of children, 12 kids in the year of this story, two teachers. And the way we structure our days and our space is to give children a lot of choice about where they play and what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to be really specific. I'm just going to lay okay. out a morning. So, so, so you have a picture in your mind of how it works. So kids arrive here in the morning between 8.30, 9. They basically can be anywhere inside or outside in the whole space until about 11, at which point we close the inside space. Um, and a couple of kids work inside to kind of clean up inside. Mm-hmm. And the whole outside space is still open for kids with the other teacher. And there's a little inside space. It's part of the outside space that we call the library, a little room. And that's all the way till 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have one whole group meeting for 30 minutes. And then the kids have lunch in two small groups, one with each teacher. And that's their day, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got a basic infrastructure that gives kids a really decent shot at what we know is most most fruitful for their learning development, which is long periods of unstructured time to play. Right. Which kind of gets at that thing I was saying earlier about like what what do they need in order to become the pretenders? Yes, the yeah, right. So and at the same time, you know, so kids are giving kids all this choice, but it's it's um. We do have ideas about things we want to do with the kids, like pretty much every day. We're not, it's not a completely, it's not like a teacher Tom, Bev Boss kind of situation, you know, like that far end of the, yeah. which by the way, I love both of them so yes. much, you know, it's not, but, but we have a little bit, we're a little bit more hybrid and that sort of, uh-huh. sort, of different, sort of in the middle. Like we have things we want kids to do with us. We have things we want kids to do together. We have agendas, you know, we have our, we call them, uh, teacher prerogative we have yeah um, and on and so those free days that the kids have are kind of punctuated with invitations right or sometimes even requirements what we would call Mm must-dos um to come work with us one-on-one or in small groups so when we're issuing those invitations or requests for the kids to come do stuff with us we try to be really sensitive to the flow of the play where they are in their, you know, like you always mm-hmm. try to find a kid who's already in the in between or at loose ends or finishing up snack or just mm-hmm. coming out of the bathroom or whatever the thing is. Um, but they're just realities of the clock and the number of kids and the length of time things take <laughs> and all the things, right? It's just, it's yeah. not, you can't do the math. It's never going to work that every single time you want kids to come with us, we're not interrupting uh-huh. a kid who's happily right. doing something else, right? Yeah. That's just going to... Yeah. And sometimes we, you know, we're going to ask them to put that stuff down for a moment to sure. join us for these things. Yeah. So it might sound like. Well, I think there's always an element of yeah. some interruption. Like even just if it's completely free, you got to go home. Yeah, <laughs> there is point, that. You know, there is that. Yeah, there is that. But the kids, the, the kids completely yeah. understand the difference between it's time to go home and you, Donna, want me to come do a thing. Yeah. They know what must do and they, they can smell it. <laughs> um, so I'm, it might sound like I'm ready for two kids at Wood Sculpture who's ready to come. Or it might uh-huh. sound like, do you want to come do your story now or in five minutes, you know? Uh-huh. Or it might sound like, I'm ready for you to come do some drawing from life. As soon as you finish your snack, before you get busy again, come on in. Uh-huh. Or this is the last moment in the morning when it's going to be possible for you to choose a new reading word before meeting. Like, do you, re- do you want to like just give it up for today or do you want to come? So it sort of sounds like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and by and large, our kids are good natured. Sometimes they're even enthusiastic about these things that we invite them to do. You know, um, they mostly like the stuff we do with them. Yeah, because we choose things because they're intrinsically meaningful and age appropriate and satisfying to do. Um, and even if they're reluctant, I think we do a pretty good job being explicit with them about mm-hmm. why we're asking them to do something. Like we're very transparent. Like we're constantly telling kids what we're thinking yeah. as teachers and what we think the value is. Sure. So they trust our basic loving and respectful intentions uh-huh. um, and there are definitely kids because i can tell you their names right now who would say <laughs> children first is great and everything but it'd be better if we didn't have must-do's so <laughs> just, just to acknowledge um that it's a balance or maybe a healthy tension you know in the way uh-huh. day. and then i just want to say that one of the things that pam taught us our pedagogical consultant that i mentioned earlier and her work is all over pursuing bad guys and she just she's got a blog yeah. and Okay. She's written some stuff, and she is an unbelievable mind. Sure, sure. Will you say her name again? Because yes. people will also want to look at her blog now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So her name is Pam Oaken, O-K-E-N, dash, right, W-R-I-G-H-T. All right, thank you. Um, I admit in the book that for the many years that I followed her work before, I actually 
we made this plan for her to come and work with us. I called her the venerable Oakenwright. <laughs> so friggin' smart. I love she's that. So smart. Anyway. Yeah. And she's just in a big heart. She's just uh-huh. so what she really helped us practice was keeping our request for kids' time and attention more in sync with their most lively interests and most pressing concerns. And, and, and I would just like say, you can really feel it, right? So anytime when we align our requests with what we're seeing in their pretend play, like what we can tell, like from this character study that we do, right? What we can tell is really their driving motivations, their most passionate preoccupations, their mm-hmm. biggest worries, those things, right? There is this zippy kind of energy in the activity, whatever it is we're doing with the kids, um, that's not there in their response to invitations that are less on the mark mm-hmm. um, for their preoccupations or their ambitions for themselves. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that was a thing that we really learned that year. Um, and, you know, I don't know, 15% of the time we hit it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm looking at our list and I'm like, boy, this might have to be released as two episodes <laughs> as we get through all these quotes. Um, so the next one isn't necessarily a quote, but it's a story you tell about an experience you had with or offered with the children called, um, and you essentially was change your face to make it scary. Yeah. And I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit, if you would. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so like many programs that really focus on relationships and identity, um, uh-huh. we've um, really always valued having lots of images of families and kids like throughout the environment. Uh-huh. Um, and we've also learned that playing with these images in different ways can yield really interesting results in this kind of character uh-huh. study kind of sense of the word and in for kids learning, whether those are images of kids' faces or these like full body photographs we take of the kids and make into these little action figures and little stands that they yeah. use small world play. I love it. Um, yeah. I, I love the action figures and the fan. And, you know, of course you do all of their families. Uh-huh. So there's just, they can play with their families all the time. Um, during the bad guy work, we also made bad guy action figures for each kid. So there was a good version and a bad version. <laughs> um, and See, this uh, is the kind of thing that makes me grieve that I'm not working directly with kids right? like every day. <laughs> It's so fun. It was so fun um, and so interesting. So anyway, so we often use these images as jumping off points for work. Like a really common thing that we do all the time is like have kids use small versions of their photographs to create story characters, right? Like to use their face, but then do whatever else they want for a body and then put themselves in a story. Uh-huh. Um, so when Pam first suggested that we make this shift and start focusing like teacher researcher energy on the kids interest in and confusion about badness. It was a really natural impulse for us to figure out ways to work with in, you know, images of them um, to study their thinking about some things. And so okay. in this case, we were, we were thinking about this word scary, which uh-huh. came a lot with bad guys. So basically Sarah did this work, my co-teacher, my amazing co-teacher, and she printed like black and white photographs of the kids' faces, maybe eight by 10, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and um, just took an overhead projector sheet, just a clear sheet. Yeah. There, you can, you know, just and um, and laid it on top of the photograph and gave them color sharpies. Uh-huh. And they and just said like, make yourself scary. And then kids just went to town <laughs> on these, you know, uh-huh. laminates and just kind of showed what they thought their face would look like yeah. if it transformed into something scary. I mean, it was just one of many times where we got to see the kids' mischievous delight in embodying powerful badness. I mean, you know, so much of this is about power. Yeah. And to see what kinds of visual effects they found scary and bad. And to see, you know, their variability and their willingness um, to make particular parts of their faces involved, like kids who wouldn't touch their eyes and Mm -hmm. kids who completely blacked out their (laughs) eyes, all those kinds of things. Yeah, you've got great photographs in the book, too. I hadn't mentioned that yet. But yeah, yeah. it's really great. Yeah. I think um, it's just always interesting to see what kids do when they use images of themselves in any kind of story or drawing work. I mean, in obvious ways, if the work is going to be autobiographical, it's just going to have sure. a lot of clues with how kids see themselves, um, how they'd like to see themselves. Um, and kids have so much agency over the expression, right? Yeah. Like they're the ones who are deciding how scary or whatever it is they're willing to look or what kind of character they want to yeah. be. So it feels like an especially 
respectful and empowering question to ask with materials uh-huh. um, and a question that yields a substantial amount of information about where the kids are around the particular mm-hmm. question. Yeah. It, so I, I was thinking about that again, just as a sort of off story, but um, I have, when I was um, five, my mom dressed me up as a witch for Halloween with scary makeup and the whole thing. And I have a picture of myself looking so unhappy about it because I was scared wow. of myself. Yeah. And I always make that my profile picture in October on Facebook. <laughs> um, so it's in my mind now again, too. But yeah. I was like, if someone had given me an opportunity then to talk about that scariness, yeah to have or to decide for yourself right yeah yeah Um, Yeah. i Mm -hmm. i that would have been um you know just pretty amazing i imagine Mm -hmm. looking back at five-year-old me yeah yeah um okay so i I feel like we need to keep trucking yeah yeah so much good stuff um you also talk about and this is really i feel like this is a really minor little piece of the writing but it's it was so impactful for me and I've used it several times since, Mm -hmm. but you talk about, you don't just have a group of 12 Mm -hmm. children. You have one Tommy and one Mm Ash. I'm making the names up and one Gus and one Molly or whatever. And then the group you think of as the 13th child. Yeah. And that was, that just really hit me immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually think that you're, I don't think that's small. I think that's probably this, maybe the biggest kind of, Maybe that's the biggest thing that happened in that time with Pam. And it and it's also big because it because it fits with the current um, context that we're all in and all of our kind of big picture rethinking. Uh, well, not I shouldn't say all of ours, our big picture rethinking. Yeah. So yeah. since since our founding, since its inception, Children First has had this like absolutely unapologetic firm, passionate commitment to the well-being of the individual child. Uh-huh. And that's who we are as a school. Our tagline for the school is this quote from Sister Corita Kent. It is only fair that each child be cherished. Each child be, not the children be cherished, that each child be cherished. And <laughs> good, the other I'm tagline. giggle and cry at the same time. Yeah, right. And the other <laughs> tagline that changes every year is the one you just said, right? Which mm-hmm. is very bewildering to many people, I must say. But yeah. it's like not the year of the bad guy work. It was not 12 children, but one Parker, one Miles, one Elizabeth, one mm-hmm. Sam, one Leah, one Mikau, one Maya, one Elena, one Avery, one Aiden, one Finn, and one Oliver. And so at the time we were starting the school, which is just before 1990, I've been focusing, I've been in graduate school, focusing on the question of childcare quality. Uh There was a lot to be worried about. And there was a lot of controversy at the time about whether kids should even be in childcare. Mm -hmm. And from my observations, it seemed like what was less than optimal in most of the places I was looking at and what the research was showing is had to do with like hurting children. Yes. You know, and, and so, and I, uh, you know, it was obvious there were incredible financial pressures that forced Mm -hmm. programs to pack large group of kids into small spaces. And then after that happened from the financial realities, then the logic, logistical pressures arose and moving kids and large groups through these days, these long days, and those conditions meant that kids' individual needs and rights and their personalities and preferences and gifts and paths are just getting lost in a kind of grim institutionalization disguised under yes. primary colors, alphabet letters, and fluorescent lighting. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Jen yeah. Greenman wrote an article yes, that 30 was years book. ago. Yes, yeah. that was the book. Oh, that was like, that book is all over our school. My God, I places love Places for Childhood. Book. Is that what the whole yes, book is Yes, yes. Yeah. Caring Spaces, Learning Places. Yeah. Jim Greenman. Oh, my God. Yeah. And poetry in that book just uh-huh. he yeah. is just the most I mean yeah. I love him so that was his thing right uh-huh. yeah. non-institutional yeah. so our first initial impulse was to stand as this firmly individualized non-institutional program that was our founding aspiration our earliest research question and really this kind of political commitment mm-hmm. that we had and so we spent our first 13 years um, offering full day full year child care serving families with two full-time working parents trying to answer that question of how we could put children first while also protecting the rights of all adults, especially mothers, to provide for their families and to pursue the work they wanted to pursue. Like we just didn't want this either or question right. driving family life, you know. We were super worried about the effects of poor quality childcare on kids. Like yeah. super worried. I'm still worried about that. Yeah. Me we too. also <laughs> felt that women had a right to work, right? And we uh-huh. wanted to push back on this dominant narrative back in the late eighties. Remember Dan Belsky that said <laughs> childcare is bad for kids and moms need to go back home. Yes. And we wanted They're to still put, saying it. The politicians yeah, I know. are still saying I know. it. And yeah. we wanted to show that there was a way to do childcare so that children could thrive and so could their parents. Mm-hmm. 
So I stand by that research question and that impulse to prioritize the individual child. I don't think that's wrong. And we're still firmly committed to a day, you know, when kids can choose whether they're inside and outside all day and when oh, can help yeah, themselves and healthy snacks whenever they're hungry. And mm-hmm. when each incoming children first or chooses a visual symbol, a sign to go with their name and nobody else is ever going to have that. I mean, that's still our primary culture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And big and my uh-huh. favorite word, by the way, is and and 32 years in, I've also come to understand that this kind of fierce individualism that we built our program around is also a really problematic aspect of American culture. <laughs> yes. Which I mean, white capitalist culture. Yes. <laughs> right? And some parts of that individualism need to be gently interrogated and reconsidered. Absolutely. So that's where we are. Yes. And we're really deep into that. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. But so I would say, like, historically, like so much of the work that teachers do with kids here has been like one-on-one work like mm-hmm. our story work is largely individual we do the kind of reading work with kids inspired by sylvia ashton warner and sydney clemens it's very much one-on-one we spend a lot of time offering visual work where one teacher is sitting with one kid or supporting their individual expression or even if we're at a table with multiple kids at once right it was really like four individuals doing their own thing with the teacher moving her attention from one to the other yeah. and we didn't convene kids for large group conversations very much and that's just where we were yeah. when Pam came and watched this work right and so her immediate question for us after observing our work and being really nice to us so we calmed down and didn't worry was yeah. that you know where are there places that we could invite more collective work like where could we invite kids into collective consideration of issues that were of shared importance to the group and by doing so could we increase kids feeling of being part of an intellectually dynamic community and the answer was yeah i think we can to do that right she thought we could definitely do that yeah she thought i was a little uneasy so so i and i want to clarify something here which is just to say that our we we already had a huge um place a huge value on community here mm-hmm. there was a very individual and community feel and there is in our program our kids already felt like they were part of an intensely connected social community okay. right we have all these rituals and traditions like we're incredibly attentive to the history of our school there's things on our walls that represent every kid who's ever gone here like every kid's face is on our bathroom wall like oh boy. Kids, you know it's a very it's very much of a community in Uh that way and there's a huge emphasis on belonging so it's not like we were individualized in the sense that our kids felt like they were like these atoms bopping around (laughs) good visual yeah yeah but there was a there was definitely a feeling of we but what pam wanted for us was to be more mindful about the ways we could bring that sense of we into the creative and intellectual work of the classroom so in all our extensive back and forth with Pam about this goal, including moments of intense resistance from me about certain aspects of it. (laughs) I finally came to this metaphor in one of our conversations and I offered it back to Pam. Uh And then she confirmed exactly that that's what she was getting at, which was that we should consider treating the group as a whole with the same degree of curiosity, commitment, and respect for its integrity as we would treat the individual kids. So making the group as a whole in a group of 12 children in essence, the 13th child. Yeah. So that's where that came from. Yeah. So like we would do things like say, we are researching. We never said that before. Or like we did more connecting our kids' work to each other's work. Or we did more group storytelling and we had more conversation about the work. And in some ways, I'd say this like fairly subtle shift in our practice and our intention really seemed to filter down to the kids in surprisingly profound ways, like mm-hmm. small changes from us you know, it was just apparent in their work. Like it, when you read the book, one of the pieces of work we described in great detail is this chapter book that evolved over the course of the late spring mm-hmm. um, from six of the kids. And you get to the third chapter in that book and you see like how how strong their sense of themselves as a group really is, the whole group, even though it's only six kids telling mm-hmm. that story. I want to say one other thing about this individual and group thing, if I can, which is that you know, we're devoted students of Vivian Paley. And around the same time that she published her book, You Can't Say You Can't Play, uh-huh. we had kids in our group that year who were really talking to us about how painful the experience of exclusion was to them. Uh-huh. At a point in time when our bias toward individualism still totally led us to privileged choice over including. Um, 
So as a community that year, we, in response to what those children were teaching us and kind of bringing to the group and also to Vivian Paley's book, mm-hmm. we shifted our agreement um, to, in our phrasing, um, find a way for all to play. That's how yeah. we talk about it here. Which I just want to say does not preclude playing alone and often doesn't preclude working in small groups or pairs. It's not that children spend their lots of their day and it's like full on herd play. <laughs> there is this general culture here now that protects including and that holds including as a social good. Uh-huh. And speaking up about the need to include what we would call upstanding as opposed to bystanding. Uh-huh is a super social good here. Like it's like a high social achievement at our school. So, and that includes speaking up against all kinds of excluding, including identity-based excluding, yeah. like racism, ageism, ableism, mm-hmm. sexism. So that agreement was already in place when Pam came, right? Yeah. That was part of that social community we had and it had been in place for many, many years. But I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just wanna name that I think what we saw when we turned towards the idea of the 13th child in this way, was a difference between what I might call compliant including or dutiful including, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, including that requires, you know, like a deep breath and a little bit of a sigh. <laughs> and like, oh my God, I okay, fine. I was like, back it again, you know, yeah, exactly. To more of a full-throated, open-hearted inclusion uh-huh. um, that really characterized that last chapter of the chapter book the kids made that year. Um, uh-huh. And that really characterized a lot of the pretend play we saw in the spring. Yeah. So it kind of made yeah. a big, big difference. That's so fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, before I go to these next two quotes, I'm going to have to say, I, I'm going to need another book from you. <laughs> I hope you're working on another one, or I'll just have to go back and reread this one again. Um, so the next next thing we've got on our list is this one from page 74. Children's pretending is rich with hints about what worries them, what frustrates them, what they long for, and what brings them joy. And that's especially true when pretending allows the children to become the badness Heather, will you go ahead and read the one from page 104 and let's do them together? Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, the next, I was just in awe for a minute about the humanity that that one gives to children, the full deep humanity. Um, Okay, yeah. So then the last one we have is page 104. When observing this sort of pretending, our our long-held teaching practice has been to, quote, complicate the play, to invite more creativity and less violence, and to promote the development of perspective-taking and empathy. Yeah, we did yeah. talk about putting those two together. Yeah, thank you. And yeah. and it's mostly because I feel like I I had talked about the pretending stuff a, a little bit yeah. already. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So this so so as a matter of policy, um, I don't think this kind of responding to being the badness, that, which is to promote empathy and creativity uh-huh. and all that stuff, is a bad way to go. Yeah. I, I think that our long held approach, um, like really like grounded a lot in like the thinking of, um, oh no. Are the names going to go away from my head? I didn't write these down. You know, the, um, the, the two women that wrote the most amazing books about war play, Diane yes. Levin and Nancy Carlson. Nancy Carlson Page, yes. I, I just, love it when I get a test in the middle of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And also, I just, I just would, ne- I, they're so important to us. Those, 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 um, those thinkers have been so important to us. So I think that, I think that that policy is ground, it's really grounded in our humanistic values and it's grounded in an image of the child as a person who's capable of deep thinking and self-reflection and empathy. Um, alongside the image of the child as someone you can trust, which is why you don't mess with their bad, badness play, uh-huh. right? like why you respect the play. Um, so I want to say a little bit more about that practice before I talk about how the year of pursuing bad guys kind of disrupted that practice. Um, so to complicate the play, um, that's sort of like in the spirit of Vivian Paley's question about whether bad guys have birthdays and moms, right? Uh-huh, right. Um, yeah, it's that, that, that they're not these flat, you know, it's just sort of puffing the characters up into more three dimensions and uh-huh. not making them so flat. And I think to invite more creativity and less violence in the play, it's stuff like this. What comes out of your shooter? Our kids make shooters constantly. Let's uh-huh. name that. Um, <laughs> what comes out of your shooter instead of bullets or bombs? Like, could it be, or fire, which is what the most common oh, one is. Oh, sure. Could it be a magic formula that turns the bad guy into a friendly puppy? <laughs> or could it be little candies that cheer the bad guy up and help him become good? Or could it be a slow motion potion that helps a bad guy think more carefully before he does bad things? Because we talk a lot about slowing down and thinking uh-huh. and what's in your brain, right? So that's the kind of inviting more creativity and less violence. It's just kind of like the teacher's just saying, I kind of wish this shooter wasn't just going to kill, but could also, do, you know, be even uh-huh. amazing, more amazing if it could do the blah, blah. Um, 
And then to promote and practice empathy with imaginary characters, that's a lot of questions like, what do you think's going on with that bad guy? Uh, like, we say that all the time. We're like, mm -hmm. what's that guy worried about? <laughs> We're just like, what's up with that? Like, yeah. you know, and then, and then questions like, I wonder if that bad guy is actually nice to other bad guys or what does he need? Like, that's a huge, like, what does the monster need? Like, what does the bad guy need? Like, yeah. well, like what story do you think that bad guy is telling himself about the best way to get what he needs? Like, what's, he seems really confused about what's going to actually help him. Like, yeah. what do you think he thinks? So it's those sorts of questions often make, I love those kinds of questions. Like, I could just basically talk to somebody about stuff like that eight hours a day. Uh-huh. Like, and, and those sorts of questions often make a lot of sense with storybook characters who are hurting other characters or making mistakes, you know, uh -huh. like in storybooks. Because in good picture books, there are often clues in the text and images that offer hints and possibilities and make it really easy for kids to kind of grapple with those mm -hmm. questions. Um, but what we learned in the Pursuing Bad Guys year was about how to privilege an orientation toward research over the comfort of acting as we have always acted. Okay. So those questions yeah. are like, those are our go-tos. That's what we always like do. That's mm -hmm. how we can explain to parents why we're not just standing there and letting their kids murder people <laughs> or whatever, like that we're actually interacting with them in these uh -huh. ways that like sort of help them turn to, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, like acting, you know, you know, acting from a stance of this is our policy. And this is what we do. Um, this is what a good teacher does kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What Pan invited us to do was to get curious about what this particular group's, this particular group's bad guy play and stories were about for them, mm -hmm. what they were trying to figure out. She was more interested in their confusion than she was in our delivering humanistic content to them, yeah. right? So, so... Yeah, so we had a long-standing and comfortable relationship with the kind of play and stories we were seeing. We believed in their value for kids in a generic kind of way. Um, we never like wanted to boss the play; just complicate it. Um, but when I kind of like that language that of complicating, complicating. the play, yeah, like yeah, yeah, I feel really comfortable with that that approach. I think it's a good policy. You know, I think it's yeah. a good policy. But when Pam first observed the group. She thought she was picking up on this confusion and intensity of energy in the kids playing conversation around bad guys and that and that she would argue that those kids would be more supported by a research stance with teachers actively joining the kids in their thinking, mm -hmm. not joining their play, nothing like that. That's right. not right. But like joining their thinking instead of having a teacher simply enacting, having these teachers enact our good policies, right? <laughs> um, no matter how warmly and carefully and with how much love we were in uh -huh. the policy. Yeah. So really what the work was inviting us to do was to become less certain of what we thought we knew and more curious about what was really happening for yeah. the kids in front of us. And it makes me think of that way Loris Malaguchi said something like, in our work with kids optimally, it would be one third certainty and two thirds uncertainty. Uh -huh. And I think that's about right. I think we were at like three, four certainty <laughs> and curiosity and we needed yeah. to get back to the two thirds, you know? So when we made that shift to the bad guy researcher and we were observing their play and taking down stories and all that, instead of executing our well-practiced responses about empathy and complicating the play and all the things, uh -huh. Um, we just tried to slow down and tune into the way the kids responded if we tried those sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. so we, were, we, we might still do those things, but then we really tried. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, successfully delivered our beautiful, <laughs> you know, high quality response, but more yes. like, okay, then what happens? Yeah. And, and I think I talk about this in the book. There were moments in those moments when we would deliver that kind of thinking to them when they were playing bad guys. You know, will that be sad for the other bad guys on the team? What will the bad guy's mom say? Oh, gosh, I wish there was some way to change the bad guy's mind so we could be on your team, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this particular group of kids at this particular moment doing the particular work they needed to do, they came as close to eye-rolling as I have <laughs> ever seen in kids under the age of 12. I was like, this is, we are so off the mark. We are making ourselves completely irrelevant to them uh -huh. in this moment because this is not what is happening for them. Um, yeah. So, so I think that the other thing I want to say that feels really important to say about this whole domain of working with kids, bad guy play is okay. that, um, and this idea of steering kids away from simplistic and violent solutions to the problem of badness, mm -hmm. um, has to do with the fundamental difference between pretend and real. Yeah. Cause I can feel people 
freaking out about. Right. It's like there's a reason why we wanted to steer them away from these violent solutions. Yeah. It's horrifying. Right. Like, you can't just go around killing everybody that annoys you. This is like in real life, this is just not how we do things, right? right? So 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 I think even in so I just want to say a little bit about that. Like yeah. the realm pretend. So even in the year documented in the book, when our kids were so preoccupied with thoroughly eradicating evil. That's how I came to see it. They just have to really get rid of this problem. Uh Um, They were still completely open to conversation and information about the difference between people who make mistakes in real life, even very grave mistakes, Uh like assassinating Dr. Martin Luther King, Uh or making unfair laws that exclude people, or stealing what you need instead of asking for it. The difference between that and pretend bad guys, like Mm -hmm. they had heard about all kinds of things that they found worrisome and sad, like Somali pirates were like very much on their minds that year. Mm -hmm. Um, We were all um, we were all thinking about Donald Trump a lot. Mm -hmm. And those are are two prime examples of what was really up for the kids, you know. Um, So conversations about real people doing things everybody agreed were not okay. whether that was yelling at people and calling them names or being unfair to black people or hurting people's bodies because you disagree with their ideas uh-huh. or you're scared of them. Any of those kinds of mistakes so prevalent in the real world. When we talked about things like that, we didn't talk about those real life people being bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and we did wonder about them and try to emphasize, I mean, empathize uh-huh. because we know, because we would say to the kids over and over and they know too that there are no bad guys, bad guys mm-hmm. in real life. Bad things happen and people make very serious mistakes but nobody's bad all the way through and all the time and nobody's good all the time either and yeah. the kids will be the first to tell you that sometimes they do things that are good and sometimes they do things that are bad everybody raises <laughs> both hands in those conversations right yeah. and so do their parents and their teachers and everyone else they know and none of those people are bad guys in the way the kids were using that idea and their stories and play right so it was like really important to understand that in a literary sense their bad guy narratives were allegory, right? It was like bad guys stood for badness Mm -hmm. and they were not realistic fiction with nuanced characters. So (laughs) it was not appropriate for us to treat their bad guy characters as nuanced characters. Uh Um, Yeah, in the way people would have. Yeah, Yeah. that's, um, I don't know, that's really an intense way, but an important way. Of, mm-hmm. of shaking ourselves up kind of as mm-hmm. you described from the same old tried yeah. and true uh responses yeah. to and I just, increasing I, our curiosity yeah yeah and we all the thing i think about with the kids all the time is i think about the kinds of fiction i enjoy the escapist fiction i enjoy uh-huh. i should probably not even like name something like and the escapist like screen time i like where uh-huh. bad guys get it you right. know, like bad guys like get blown up and the good guys win. It's like, it's very, you know, it's very, um, it's very relaxing. There's yeah. something about it. It's just very pleasurable. Yes. And that has nothing to do with like how I treat my family. Right. Right. Or what <laughs> I, I would really yeah. want to experience. Right. In my life. Or even like how I would, or even how I like think about elected officials that I yeah. really disagree with or, you know what I mean? People who are doing things I think are really harmful that in the real world is very right. different than these fantasies I allow myself. And so I think that the, that we can trust that the kids can navigate that same difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, you make me want to get back into daily work so I can, um, man, I, I just, I, I mean, I'm working on some, some research now, um, that every day I'm like, if I were with children right now, I could think about this so much more deeply. I could, yeah. I could wonder so much differently than I do just sitting by myself wondering in my own head yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about how things are are working and how this theory really translates. Um, so, so anyway, um, that's another way that I think this book has really um, shaken me up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I so appreciate it. Is there any any last? thing you want to to talk about or um can, can they find you do you no they can't i'm they i'm can't completely find oh no no that's not true they can <laughs> completely find the children first website and there is a ton of writing on there including yeah. 
including some new work on our social justice um, curriculum, which we've been really, really yeah. wrestling with for the last couple of years with sure. the help of two amazing teachers, Emma Redden and Grace Aldrich at Full uh -huh. Story School. Um, so yeah, so if you just go to the Children First, yeah, Children First School, I don't, you can just look up Children First and Google Durham Children Park. First. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, and I would love for people to check that out. If they yeah, want to, don't do because yeah, I think they're gonna want to. I hope they'll buy the book. It's called again, Pursuing Bad Guys: Joining Children's Quest for Clarity, Courage, and Community. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, I guess we better wrap up. People are trying to get a hold of you. <laughs> Heather, thank you so much for inviting this conversation. I, I super appreciate it. it. Yeah, so much. And thank you for your patience as we figured out oh, how to get you here. The perfect I, um, timing in the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think folks are going to really um, want to check this out a little bit more. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you everybody for listening to another episode. We'll see you uh, next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.